Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If I'd have died then, would I really have done something that I loved with my life? Would I really have done something truly meaningful with my life? Would I really have made a difference or made a legacy or even been proud of the things that I'd done? And the answer was no. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. We're here to share fascinating stories and advice from innovative and pioneering women from around the world. I have to say, we're blown away by the positive feedback we've been receiving since the show's launch. Thank you so much for that. It really means a lot. To help spread the word, we're offering the chance for one listener to win a free two-hour personal coaching session with both Claire and I. That's right, Greta. And I'm really excited to get the chance to get to know and support one of our listeners. Head over to our website, don'tstopusnow.co forward slash win for all the information on how to enter. Now for this week's episode. Today, we're excited to be speaking to the uplifting Sherilyn Shakel. Sherilyn spent the first part of her career as a formidable headhunter in the UK. She borrowed millions to buy the company she worked for in her mid-30s and grew the business to be hugely successful. However, a near-death experience in her early 40s led Sherilyn on a journey to find her true purpose. She's now the founder and CEO of the Marketing Academy, an international not-for-profit organization dedicated to developing and elevating talent in the marketing, media, and communication industries. In this episode, you'll hear Sherilyn talk about how she's gone about finding her purpose how she liberates her decision-making with the question, what's the worst thing that could happen? Why spending time with the people who will come to your funeral is crucial, and how she lost 21 kilos using blogging to keep herself accountable. It's time now to sit back and listen to the human dynamo that is Sherilyn Shakel. Sherilyn, welcome to the Don't Stop Us Now podcast. It's a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. Whereabouts are you today? Because you're always gadding about the world or jumping on trains. Where are you today? I'm actually in the UK today. And right now I'm in my home enjoying the remnants of a mini heat wave. And when I say heat wave in the UK, it's a bit like your winter in Australia. (laughs) But I'm taking advantage of it. I know, because it's been pretty shocking, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been awful. It's been awful. But this weekend, now 28 degrees. It's been amazing. Fantastic. That is good. Well, I'd love to kick us off. And the work you're doing is so interesting, and you've had a really interesting background. But for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better, how would you summarize your career in a few sentences? A few sentences. I think I can sum it up in one word, and that is accidental. (laughs) I think I've had an accidental career, and it's been really in two parts. The first part of my life, leading right up until my early 40s, I was in the recruitment industry, 
And that was completely accidental. I was in my early 20s. I was in between jobs. I met a guy in a pub one night and <laughs> needed to find a job. Didn't know what I wanted to do. Didn't have a clue what I was good at. He said, I think you'd be really, really good in recruitment. You know, a career in recruitment would really work for you. And I didn't even really know what it was. I said, what do you do in that industry? What is it? And he said, well, you make money out of finding people jobs. And I thought, my God, that sounds cool. But you never get to the end of people, right? There's many, many people. So there's a huge amount of supply. And there's a lot of jobs out there. So there's a big amount of demand. Yeah, that could sound good. And I said to him, what do I need to be good at to be in recruitment? And he said, well, you don't need to be good at anything to get in recruitment. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's it, then that's the job for me. And I totally fell into it and just found that I was good at it. And then when I was in my early 40s, there was a complete change in direction. And maybe we'll talk about the why a little bit later. But I discovered this incredible world of leadership development and developing people. I was always very interested in the customer at the heart of the boardroom in my career as a headhunter that was always really really important to me and therefore I knew that I wanted to do something within the world of marketing media and communications because the people in that industry are the communicators and influencers of our age and therefore that was an industry that was going to make a big impact on the world I was in my mid-40s when I took what is a completely different divergent path and set up a not-for-profit organisation developing people in this amazing industry of marketing, media and advertising. So an accidental career in two parts, I guess. Very interesting. And you're right. We will absolutely come back to the whys and hows of that big change from chapter one, if you like, to chapter two of your career. But if you sort of think today of where you're at, how do you think your childhood has impacted who you are today? Oh, huge. I think it impacted everything that I am today. I had a fantastic childhood, quite middle class, if I'm honest, but a really, really fabulous childhood, very, very much loved. And my mum was a career woman. Um, my mum was a businesswoman. She ran shops in Bournemouth, of all places. And uh, my father, a good 20 years older than my mum, was the house husband. So he, he looked after me all of my life, really, when I, when I was growing up. I used to follow my mum around the shop and I used to work in the shop. And in fact, I left school at 16 to work in the shop, in the, in the family firm. And she, she loved me so completely and totally. And I loved and worshipped her in every way, shape or form. And I, and I realised as I got older that she gave me an innate sense of self-worth. That's fascinating. And it not only perhaps did she instill in you that sense of self-worth and belief, but perhaps also some of that entrepreneurial run your own business uh, streak as well. Yeah, she did. She did. I didn't know that at the time. I mean, I really didn't. It's amazing what you find out about yourself when you're older. But it was a family business. And, you know, we wouldn't have had anything in our lives had that business not been successful. And, you know, her being able to do that and build that business was amazing. She was the breadwinner. She was the successful businesswoman. And, you know, I guess subconsciously that was all dripping in. I always, always loved to be my own boss, you know, and I, and, and I figured that I wanted to be my own boss, I think, quite young. And that was, you know, much part because she was her own boss and I'd seen the success of it. So, yeah, I think she created the entrepreneur that I was to become. She sounds like an incredible inspiration. How long did it actually take you to become your own boss? I was 
36 when I bought the executive search firm that I was running. So I was its CEO and I'd had a very successful career in recruitment and I bought it when I was about 36, I think, 36, 37. Gosh, that must have been a big decision. How did you decide to actually sort of take that risk to own it yourself? Well, it didn't It didn't actually feel like a big decision at the time. It's just only when I look back on things and I think, shit, did I really do that? <laughs> I mean, clearly it was a big decision because I had to borrow a shed load of money to buy it. And I mean a lot of money in the millions. I remember saying to my husband, you know, I really want to do this because I knew I could. You know, that's what mitigates risk, I think, is just having that belief that you can do it. But in having conversations and making that the definitive decision, my husband kind of used something that we've used ever since. We do it a lot. And that is that we really thought through what was the worst that would happen. You know, what was the very worst that could happen? Because, you know, anything that you're visualizing as a result of something that you're going to do is a possibility or an assumption. It's never an absolute fact or a truth. So we went down the thought process of, you know, well, what's, what's the worst that can happen? Well, the worst that can happen, are we going to die? No, we're definitely not going to die. Uh, is anything going to happen to the children? No, nothing's going to happen to the children. Okay, so we could lose our house. Yes, we could lose the house. And what would happen then? Well, if we lost the house, we'd get a smaller house. <laughs> you know, we'd move into rented accommodation. We'll move into a B&B. Could we live with that? Yeah, we probably could. So, so you know, we went down the thought process of well, what is the worst that can happen. And so long as, and I've found it as a mantra ever since, so long as you can look at it objectively and think, well, if that was the worst that could happen, could I live with that? And if the answer is yes, then, you know, where's the problem? And that's what we thought at the time. You know, if it had all gone tits up, we'd have been in debt, we'd have lost the house, we'd have still had each other, we'd have still had our children, and I would still be able to get a job somewhere. So that's the worst that can happen. I'm okay with that. We went forward with it. It's a great way of thinking, isn't it? I, I remember doing that myself when I made the big leap from the corporate world into starting something myself. Yeah, because you could always go back to the corporate world. You know, it may not be what you love, it may not be what you want to do, but you know, you've always got choices. And if they are your choices, then even if it's not your preferred choice, there's a certain element of empowerment that says, well, you're still making this choice and the choice is yours and you're responsible for it and you're responsible for the outcome. And I've always found that really quite empowering. Yeah, for sure. And I think the thing is that we're so privileged to have choices, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. We live in such such privileged world. Not everybody has those choices. And, you know, I can't imagine what that must be like. And I can emphasise with it, but can't imagine being in a world where we don't have choices. I guess even in a world where things happen to us, though, you know, outside of our control, we're kind of still responsible for choosing the way in which we think about it reframing the lens through which you look at a situation you found yourself in there's always a choice somewhere you know even choosing to be miserable or pissed off about something you know is a choice you're choosing that so I'm lucky and I feel totally privileged all of the time about the life I lead yeah and and recognize that not everybody's got that yeah absolutely I I love that point though that you make about the fact that we do have choices even if it's just about the way we think about something it's a brilliant point so you took this big decision, you borrowed millions of pounds and you bought the company that you were working with, or for, sorry. What happened next? Well, it was very successful. 
for a good 10, 12 years. I mean, it had been a, I'd had a very successful career up till then. You know, I'd started in it when I was in my early 20s. And by the time I was in my mid to late 30s, I owned a company in it. And it was very successful. So I'd fallen into something accidentally that I'd discovered I was very good at. And thus made a lot of money, at, to be honest. So it was a very, very successful thing from a financial perspective and from a material perspective. But I reached a point, it was in my early 40s, where it didn't actually feel like that. It didn't actually feel successful because I got myself trapped in that whole loop of, you know, making money, living a certain lifestyle because I've made money and then having to make more money to maintain the lifestyle. And I'd got myself into quite a treadmill, if I'm honest. And it culminated in me becoming very, very stressed, working every hour, God sent, hardly seeing the children, traveling a lot. And in truth, in my heart, in my core, I never loved being a headhunter. I never loved being in that industry, ever. I didn't really allow myself to look at it at the time because it was a means to such a fabulous end. You know, I was doing this job that I was really good at and being successful at it, at least in terms of money. But I never bounced out of bed in the morning feeling full of joy. I never came home at the end of the day feeling, yes, today I've changed someone's life. I've I've done something meaningful. I've done something with purpose. And what I didn't realize at the time is that sort of discordant balance between being successful and doing something that I love was having a very, very negative impact on me health-wise. And when I was in my early 40s, just after the birth of my third child, I became really, really ill overnight, nearly died. It was very traumatic and, uh, you know, with flashing lights and intensive care and, you know, any moment during this time that I was in the hospital, I could have just died. And I came out of that illness thinking, if I'd have died then, would I really have done something that I loved with my life? Would I really have done something truly meaningful with my life? Would I really have made a difference or made a legacy or even been proud of the things that I'd done? And the answer was no. (laughs) And so I recovered from the illness physically quite quickly. The emotional recovery took a lot, lot longer. And the result of the emotional recovery was to embark on a very, very different type of life and a very, very different career path. And the Marketing Academy was the result of that. I'd never, ever truly, truly explored what it was that would make my heart beat faster, you know, what it was that would give me and bring me joy, what I could be good at that I could use in a way that would give me joy. I'd never allowed myself the reflection or time to really think that through. And, and I thought at the time, I, never, I don't want anybody else to have to get to that stage in their life. You know, I was at the absolute bottom from a physical perspective. And I knew that I'd reached the bottom because emotionally, I was not living the life I really, truly and honestly wanted to live. But, you know, it's it can be such a trap, can't it? Because if you're so successful, uh, you don't have the time or necessarily that kind of headspace to think about, but yeah, am I really loving what I'm doing? Because you get caught up. So how did you find your purpose once you'd reached that rock bottom point? How did you discover what was next for you? Well, there was an enforced period of kind of time out 
because I needed to, to recover. It wasn't that long. It was, you know, four or five months, I guess, of hiding under a duvet, mostly, you know, hiding hiding in my bed. My confidence had gone out the window. I've got to be honest. I started to realise that I wasn't immortal, and that was a bit of a shock. <laughs> and therefore, my confidence, which has always been really, really high, was severely dented. And I just spent a, a little bit more time giving myself permission to not get back into that rat race, you know, forcing myself to think, give myself time to think. I had some amazing people in my life at that time. I've always had amazing people in my life. I'd been on the board of a leadership development company in the UK who run a a very profound transformational program. And the owner and founder of that business is one of my closest friends and, and has always been one of my mentors. She helped to guide me through looking at what my life could look like. So if I could accept that the way in which I was living was not serving me in its holistic sense, it was providing money for my family, right? It was feeding my family. It wasn't feeding my soul. She allowed me the opportunity just through through coaching, really, just to visualize what would it be like then in in a world where I could create anything, you know, what would it look like? What would be the things that I loved? What would I want surrounding me? What impact would I want to make? And just allowing me just a little bit of time to visualize what that might look like. Now, I've realized since everybody and anybody can do that. You have to give yourself a little bit of time, but allowing an opportunity where you just visualize what the best time in your life could look like sometime in the future that hasn't happened yet and what would be in place and what would be going on for you in that time? What would your relationships be like? What work will you be doing? You know, what will your life be full with? That began to shape what I wanted to do going forward. You know, I'd always been passionate about talent. As a recruiter, as a headhunter, it's all about people. So I'd been really, really passionate about talent. I'd been um, very, very keen for any company that I work with to understand the power that marketing, media and advertising can have within their organization because it's the only industry and function that really touches the consumer and influences the way that people think and the decisions that they take. I was hugely attracted to this industry that I'd never been a part of. And I was dedicated to becoming the best leader I could possibly be. You know, the best leaders develop other leaders. And I really wanted to find a place where that would come to pass. And I did not want the commercial rat race. I did not want to find myself in a situation where I was having to make more money just because of the money that I'd, you know, that I'd already made and trying to maintain it. I had to get off that rat race. Wow. And when we look at the Academy now, you can see all of that. But there must have been quite a bit of bridging that went from visualizing that world to then visualizing what the Marketing Academy would look like. How did you do that? I began to talk to people about this kernel of an idea. And, you know, the one thing that the my career as a headhunter had given me is a very, very powerful, connected black book. So I had a fantastic network of people. And I went out to them and I started to just talk about this seed of an idea I had. You know, if I could put leadership in emerging generations of talent in an industry that could really make an impact on the world, what might that look like? It took me about 18 months to build the academy from the very first kernel of the idea took about 18 months and it took about 18 months and 200 people to launch the academy and I was able to 
meet people and connect with people who kind of shared my passion. I think once you start putting stuff out there, once you start saying to the universe, this is what I want to do, and I'm so passionate about it, I really think it can make a big difference, you will attract those opportunities. And this is probably a really good moment for you to perhaps explain a little bit about the Marketing Academy. What actually is it? It's a not-for-profit organisation that's completely dedicated to developing generations of talent, emerging generations of talent at different levels within the industry of marketing, media, communications and advertising. How we develop this talent is through utilising the existing wisdom and experience that everybody within the industry has at the C-suite. So what we do is we attract in all of the guys that are the current leaders within the industry and all of the companies at the very, very top of their game. And we provide them with a platform to pay their learning back down the generations to help us nurture and develop the generations of talent coming up underneath them in order that we create the best, best leaders of the future going forward. So it's part of voluntary organisation. There's about over the academies and programmes that we run, there must be in excess of 500 people who support the work. So they provide the learning that we enable our scholars and our fellows, we have a fellowship program, which is a senior level program, to experience. So it's really a, a platform for the good and the great to help all of the emerging generations to learn how to be the best they can possibly, possibly be. It's such a great opportunity for those participants. I can imagine this, as you say, the profound amounts of change and learning that and growth that happen over that period of time. Now, I know you're in several countries. How many countries now is the Marketing Academy operating in? Well, from June, three. So we're in the UK, we're in Australia, and from June, we'll be in the US. So we're just in the process of launching launches third week of June. And then we have targeted the Middle East out of Dubai. And then we're looking at Asia also. So, you know, the plan is to have Marketing Academy operations happening everywhere. This is the fantastic entrepreneur in you, I think. How have you gone about persuading and seeding this idea to take hold and take off? Because I can tell our listeners that it's certainly taken off in Australia and those scholarship positions are madly coveted because it's such a fantastic opportunity for them to learn and grow. It's all about people. It really is so about people and about the relationships you have with people. So I was only able to launch in Australia because of the people that we have in the, that we have in the UK. I got led to everybody I spoke to on a personal one-on-one basis. And we're doing exactly the same in the States. Even in Dubai, you know, when I stopped in Dubai for a week on a trip down to Australia about a year ago. I was there for five days. And I thought, I really should go out and speak to the people in the industry and find out whether, you know, they would be embraceive of this thing. And so I just went out to my community in the UK and said, hey, I'm thinking about the Middle East. Is there anybody seriously cool that's based in Dubai that might be around the week after next that I should have a chat with? And what happens is I just get led to people who the people who know me believe will embrace the ideas and philosophies that we, that we teach. So I'm really lucky that the academy reached this stage where the word of mouth about it, and now it's reputation, fortunately, kind of precedes it and the the bottom line 
with the academy, you know, nobody's making money out of this. This is a non-commercial entity. It is a not-for-profit and it's, you know, supported by the industry, for the industry, uh, and no one's getting rich off the back of it. And everybody is donating their time and their knowledge and their wisdom. And, and, you know, that's a really great thing. I mean, that was accident. I'd love to say I was some mad strategist that was able to visualize this whole thing, but it wasn't. It was an organic thing that just grew and grew and grew over, over time. And, you know, scholarship by scholarship. And, and then we built in additional programs at different levels and it just took off on its own. Sherilyn, one of the things that we wanted to touch on was you've written a very witty blog over the last year, I think it was over 2017, all about your journey losing weight. And I think you were trying to lose 52 pounds in 52 weeks. Can you tell us more about that journey that you went on? Yeah, it was fab. (laughs) To tell you how I got there in the first place, I was relatively like normal size until I was in my 30s. When I got pregnant with my first child 23 years ago, I put on six stone during that pregnancy. Gosh. Six. Six stone. Yeah, I was really good at eating. (laughs) And then four months after I had her, I discovered I was pregnant with my second child and I put on another stone. Wow. So I was effectively seven stone overweight and that's where I stayed. (laughs) So I I found myself really good at maintaining my weight. (laughs) So I was seven stone overweight for the last 20 odd years. And it never bothered me. I never really had an issue with it. Because when my husband always told me I was beautiful, so I believed him. He was all I really cared about. I reckon I had the opposite of that body dysmorphia. I mean, I think body dysmorphia is a really terrible thing, but I'm pretty sure I had the opposite of it, which is that in my head, I was still the size I was before I was pregnant, because I'd been that size for 30 years. And so I'd I'd walk past the mirror and just think, well, that isn't me. It's just not me. (laughs) So intellectually, I knew how overweight I was. Intellectually, I knew I was huge. Um, but emotionally, it never bothered me. Until the year before I did the blog and, and decided to do something differently. And it was Christmas 2016. We'd gone on holiday. And uh, we were looking at, at maybe investing in a small holiday home somewhere abroad. And I saw this apartment that was, I just thought, oh my God, that's the apartment of my dreams. That's the one we should buy. But it was four floors up and it didn't have a lift. And I thought, no, 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 we can't possibly buy that because I already can feel, you know, my knees hurting when I'm walking upstairs. So if we're going to buy this place and we're going to, you know, retire here, it's got to have a lift. As I was thinking it, I was thinking, oh, seriously? I am seriously accepting that in five years' time, I'm not going to be able to walk up four flights of stairs because of my weight. How is that, in any way, shape or form, the right thing to be thinking? And for the first time, really, I started to think, I've got to do something about this. I live this amazing life. I have everything in my life that's fabulous. And I thought, you know, I'm risking. I'm not going to be able to live it to its fullest extent because my weight is going to impact on my health. I thought I've got to do something about it. And then I thought, oh my God, I've got so much weight to lose. And that probably had been one of the things that had stopped me before. I just looked at this huge mountain, this mountain of flesh, (laughs) this mountain of pounds and kilos and thought, 
It's seven stone. I'm never going to be able to lose seven stone. That was that voice in my head, right? A voice in my head saying, it's not going to happen. You're going to hate it. You know, you're not going to stick to it. You'll do it for a couple of weeks and then you'll come off it. So why bother? That's how I've been choosing to think for 23 years. And I decided to do what I preach and take responsibility and make some changes. I figured that the one of the things that would probably hold me to it would be going public about it. Very clever. I decided to do the blog and I, and I made a commitment on New Year's Day um, that I would do this thing. I decided to do it very slowly because I think that a lot of women and men that are overweight kind of want it immediately, uh, which, you know, would be me. If somebody could have weighed a magic wand and lost seven stone in a month, I'd be very happy. But it's not realistic. And so I decided that I would set realistic goal. You know, I might not be able to lose seven stone, but can I lose a pound a week? Yeah, I could probably lose a pound a week. That doesn't sound that hard. And that's how I looked at it. That's all I had to do. I just had to lose a pound. I didn't have to lose seven stone, just a pound. I made sure that I was okay with that taking the year. And I was going to be better with it taking a year if I, you know, just had to cut back a little bit, just make a few little changes than, you know, go on something radical or drastic in the way of, of diet. So I wrote the blog and then it started to get followed and then it started to get followed by more people and then at those moments where I thought oh my god I really want Kentucky Fried Chicken or when the voice in my head thought go on eat it you've been really good go on you can eat it I just think yeah but I've got a blog about it this week (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to publicly fail I did discover that my ego is bigger than my appetite and and not wanting to to fail publicly was a big driver. That's fantastic. I know I often say things out loud just so people can hold me to them. Works a trick. So if you think about your journey and looking back, what advice would you give to your 30-year-old self if you had the chance? I would ask my 30-year-old self what I really, really love. What is it that you really, really love? What is it that you're good at? What is it that's going to give you joy? What in your life sets your heart and your soul on fire? Move more in that direction than in a direction that something that you might be making a lot of money at but doesn't fill you with joy every moment. There was a piece of advice that a speaker in Australia used that I've used ever since. And he said, Spend time with the people who will come to your funeral. We spend and invest so much time in things that don't really matter in the long run. You know, we spend a lot of our time just being busy. We spend a lot of our time on that treadmill, not pausing to think. What you fill your life with is what matters. If you fill your life with the people develop relationships with the people that are going to be there right at the end, going to be there your whole life. Your life will be so much more fulfilled. If we do every day something that gives us joy, even a small thing, like telling someone else how much we appreciate them, like thanking that waiter who's just bought us our meal, looking at the in the eyes and thanking them. If we just do little things in our life every day that either brings us joy or brings somebody else joy, then, you know, the life is much more worth living. And I never knew when I was 30 that I could be dead at 42, 43. But that could have happened to me. I wish I'd set the academy up when I was in my 30s. I probably couldn't have and it wouldn't have. But if I'd have only said to myself then, what do you really, really love? What do you really want to fill your life with? What's going to give you true joy? I might have done things differently 
in the intervening years. That, that would be my advice. Wonderful advice and not not just great advice for your 30-year-old self, but for anybody. That's absolutely fantastic. Well, Sherilyn, it's been such a joy talking to you today. Your passion and energy for your purpose just just shines out of you. We would love to allow our listeners to connect with you and the Marketing Academy. So how can they actually find you? In Australia, they can go to themarketingacademy.org.au, put a UK on the end of it for the UK Academy and US for when we launch in the States. But you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. You can get me at Sherilyn at themarketingacademy.org.uk. I'm all about people. I love connecting with people. You know, I'd be more than happy for anybody to get in touch, get connected. There are free learning opportunities within the academy. We do open lectures. We do all sorts of events. So, you know, get involved, get in touch. Love to hear from you. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your generosity, both in your time, but also for what you're doing, because it's an absolutely uh, fantastic initiative. I think our listeners will be really excited to hear about it. So thank you again, Sherilyn, and we'll see you very soon, we hope, back in Australia. Yeah, you will. Back in July. Thank you so much. It's been an honour. Total privilege. Thank you very much for your time. Fabulous. Thanks very much, Sherilyn. Before you go, could you benefit from a totally free two-hour coaching or personal strategy session? We're offering one listener the chance to win this rare session with Greta and I. So if you're pondering a career change or wrestling with a sticky issue at work or don't have the confidence you'd like or simply need a sounding board, then head along to our website for more info on how to enter. You can go to don'tstopusnow.co forward slash win. But hurry, we'll be drawing the winner on the 3rd of July. And a reminder that your ratings and reviews of this podcast are the fuel that keep us going. So please think about making this your good deed for today. It really means a lot to us. For now, see you back here soon. And here's to being a little bit more unstoppable each and every day. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.